This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world, our culture, and our politics. And that includes the seasons, like the one we're in now. Back to school time. One subject that gets glossed over faster than you can imagine, world religions. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, I taught world history in a public high school in Memphis, Tennessee. And boy, I still remember clearly my frustration with the anemic and at times distorted overviews that were often presented in the textbooks that just did not mesh with reality. My observations were not unique. We lump things in like Confucianism, and it kind of looks like a religion, and it doesn't really function the way that, like, philosophy in Europe functions. So, like, yeah, 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 we'll just call it religion. Well, like, we can trace that. We know exactly when that happens. That's Dr. Elise Morgenstein first. She's a tenured professor of religion, and she's an expert in Islam, South Asia, and the global history of imperialism. She and Dr. Megan Goodwin, also a religion scholar with a focus on gender, sexuality, race, politics, and American religions, teamed up. Together, these are two smart and passionate women about teaching religion. But as Megan puts it, those opportunities are limited. There's very few spaces for them to learn about religion as a category of human experience. So a few years ago, they launched a podcast, Keeping It 101, The Killjoy's Introduction to Religion. Initially, it was just for students, but quickly, they found a much bigger audience, and that includes me. This year, the upcoming season, Incorrect, is set to launch August 31st, and it's supported by a fellowship from the University of Vermont's Humanities Center. This week, my conversation with the co-creators and co-hosts of a lively podcast. They are teaching, not preaching, and have no trouble tapping into their humor. Both are snarky and smart. After all, they call themselves religion nerds. Welcome, Megan and Elise. Thank you for joining me on Inspired by Interfaith Voices. It's a pleasure to have you guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Okay, when I listen to your podcast, and when I started listening, you guys are having so much fun. <laughs> like, yeah. A lot of fun. You're laughing mm-hmm. and you're talking about a heavy subject, religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like the click and clack of car talk for me. Like, It's <laughs> highest compliment. It really is. That's a incredibly high compliment. I'm going to keep that for a rainy day. <laughs> I, I just, I love it because it's like a tune-up, you know, like you're listening to them and you're like, yeah, my car makes that noise too. And mm. then they give you some insights. They make you ask some questions. And similarly, like I'll read a headline or somebody will say something to me in an interview and make a reference that I'm not exactly sure what that means. And you guys are one of my go-to sources. I'm like, have they uh-huh. talked about this? For somebody who's out there going, I don't know what they're talking about. Tell listeners what is the podcast about? and why you call yourself religion nerds? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, how about I go first, Megan? Sure. So Keeping It 101 
is a podcast that, you know, the subtitle is A Killjoy's Introduction to Religion. So we tell you right up at the front that we're introducing this, but we're also doing it in a way that's going to really be a stone cold bummer. We (laughs) want folks to see how dangerous other people can be Uh and how violent our histories have been. But also we want to show folks that it doesn't have to stay that way, that Uh we have created this system and therefore we can change this system. And we want to do it with jokes because Uh why not have joy? I don't think being a kill joy means there is no joy. I think it means we are demanding better of each other. And that demanding better of each other can be a joy in and of itself if we are truthful with one another and we hold each other accountable. Yeah. Yeah. How how did you two come to this work? Megan, tell me what led you to choose to study religion? So I come from a long line of religious fanatics. I'm not sure that they would appreciate uh, that description, but I think it's a fair one. So my dad's side is overwhelmingly Irish Philly Catholics, and my mom's side is German Irish Catholics that then one of them became a Sister of Mercy. Several of them are different kinds of Baptist. Uh, I've got one kind of free-range apocalyptic evangelical aunt. Um, yeah, so religion was a very live conversation when I was growing up, and I took it very seriously. Uh, I did 13 years of Catholic school, decided that didn't work for me, but I was still really interested in the subject. Uh, (laughs) I decided to major in print journalism back when that was a thing. But by the time I got to senior year, I realized I was still really interested in these questions about religion and why people wanted to to do it and be it. Uh, So I, like a giant nerd, sat in on four, five uh, religious studies classes at Boston University for no credit because I was out of credits. So I just went and did the work for fun. I was really interested, particularly in conversations about religion, gender, and uh, new religious movements. But the central questions around who is included, who is protected, and who gets left out are ones that have always really mattered to me. So I was really lucky to be in some outstanding grad programs at Drew and then UNC Chapel Hill. And I feel like I have made some progress toward answering those questions in ways that feel satisfying to me, even if they are uh, often disruptive and unsatisfying to a lot of other folks. (laughs) And it sounds like you found a way to bridge your passion and interest in communications and storytelling and reporting with your interest and curiosity about uh, beliefs and what draws people to them and then how society at large chooses to count them or not count them. I have. Yeah. And I've been really lucky there. So thanks to the Luce Foundation and Liz Bucar and Northeastern University for allowing me to help start and run a program that specifically focuses on communicating about religion with the public in ways that hopefully increase both the clarity and the impact. And Elise, tell us a little bit about what drew you into this world. I mean, I also have a personal background. So I was adopted by a Jewish family and I was raised Jewish and identify as Jewish now. I raised Jewish children. Um, My accent is very strictly Brooklyn, New Jersey Jews (laughs) with like Yiddish peppered in the more alcohol I have. Um, (laughs) But uh, I also was a college first year student was the second week of school for me when 9-11 happened. And I happened to be taking class with Omid Safi, one of two Mm. Muslim professors on campus at the time. And Everything felt like training until that point, right? So growing up in a post-Holocaust Jewish-American family, 9-11 felt like 
okay, what's going to happen now, right? Because our Pakistani friends were being like held at the airports because their student visas weren't uh, counting anymore. And my dad's experience with the draft in Vietnam was being reiterated in those early days uh, after 9-11 for guys our age. And so all of it felt like, okay, I come from this radical activist family, like straight commie Bolshevik pinko Jews from New York. Mm. Uh, We are the thing that conservative right-wing radio wants you to fear, Mm -hmm. Um, but with lots of dancing and matzo (laughs) balls. And, uh, And so that felt like the personal background. But more importantly, I was always interested in history, power, politics, and identity. And religion as a discipline in the university was like a one-stop shop. Like at the end of the day, I'm actually a very, um, I'm interested in efficiency. And so the idea that I would have to take all of these political science classes and cobble them together with history classes and then cobble those together with some literature classes seemed really silly when I could just major in religion. And they were doing all of that work. And I could take more classes and study abroad and go on to grad school. So for me, it was pragmatic um, and just a good fit to the questions I was asking about religious belonging, identity, and violence. And why is it that violence among all those various pieces, wh- why is it that that is the lens that you want to bring attention to? I think because I was raised in this post-Holocaust family and then 9-11 happened at such a formative moment in my like early adulthood, it just felt really clear that we don't pay actually enough attention to what we would now call maybe micro or academics would call microaggressions or systems of oppression. As a, as like a teen, I had a sense of righteous indignation about having to take sick days for the high holidays or um, my mom rushing home after teaching a full day to then cook Yom Kippur dinner. But our Christian friends you know, you had off from the 22nd of December straight through to January 6th because, of course, you would need all that extra time to cook a turkey or something. So I think those like really small things that felt unfair really stuck with me. And I put those in the framework of violence, not because it's the same thing as physical violence or murderous violence or state violence or colonial violence, but because the systems of violence create a scenario where my mom rushing home and never feeling like she has the time to prepare adequately or um, in the way that she wants is allowed. And her struggle, her fears, her belief system, her community is second, it's second, you know? And so Mm. I think that framework always made sense to me in this like, oh, so people who are not Christian get treated different legally and socially. And I'm curious about not just why that happens, but why we allow it to continue. And mm-hmm. so I think um, I, I think of myself as like a bona fide historian with all of the proper citations. But ultimately, I come at religion from a place of activism and a place of like truly wanting a far more egalitarian world than we currently enjoy. Mm. You know, both of you are really candid and open about where you're coming from and the challenges that you see. Is that a unique expression to hear from members of the academy, from religion professors? (laughs) I don't excel in situations where uh, I am supposed to 
candy coat what I think. So uh, I, particularly in situations where we're seeing violence and oppression so active and so blatant, it doesn't make any sense to me not to call it that. I think speaking in the eye is a remnant of like good feminist scholarship Mm. and good womanist scholarship of like the 70s, 80s, and 90s where situating yourself in the system instead of pretending that you can Mm -hmm. be objective, Mm -hmm. right? Because like who's allowed to be objective? And so, you know, I – I can't separate myself from my subject matter because the reason I study it, the reason I want to participate in it, the conversations I have are personal as much as they are professional. And so I think Megan and I come from that kind of intellectual tradition that says there's no such thing as objectivity and Mm -hmm. people in our bodies are not always afforded the luxury of being seen as objective And so why are we even playing? Why are Mm -hmm. we pretending? Of course we have a bias. Of course we come from a place of uh, interest, passion, knowledge. And of course we care about some things more than others. Let's at least be clear and transparent about those um, commitments and priorities. And then that way you're just having a transparent and open conversation with folks. And like I tell students all the time, um, asking someone to change their mind is a deeply intimate exchange. And so if I'm not willing to be vulnerable or intimate, then how dare I ask someone else to show up and give me that, right? Like it has to be a two-way street. No, I think yes to everything that Elise said slash pretty much everything Elise says, except for her hatred of Star Wars, which I will never forgive. Um, (laughs) But I do also think that in the wake of the lead up to the 2016 election and then seeing the 2016 election, I also really emerged from teaching race, religion, and politics with a sense of urgency uh, that I hadn't felt before. A lot of the conversations that I had had in grad school around teaching some really radical subjects were conversations about sowing seeds and playing long games and trying to gently guide folks toward more critical and nuanced thinking about religion. And after the election, I just didn't feel like I had that kind of time anymore, which is really when I started looking for more of these opportunities to do public communication around religion. I have had the benefit of sitting in some conversations in which I hear the stresses and pressures and demand on time for unpaid labor Uh uh, for work that you produce. Are you feeling that? Are you feeling this pressure when you see a headline or you see a story that's missing the historical context, the religious context, do you feel this pressure that you've got to you've got to you've got to push aside what you had on your list to do and sit down and think about we've got to do an episode or I've got to write an op-ed or I've got to I've got to participate in a forum or a webinar to raise public awareness and and educate. Do you feel that pressure? I mean, first, I want to thank you for raising the issue of labor around public scholarship, because it is an awful lot of labor. But the the pressures are different depending on where you're positioned uh, in relationship to the academy, right? I am not employed by university, so I don't have to worry about tenure and promotion. I have the latitude to decide which pieces... I should or can comment on. I do feel a responsibility to chime in, for example, on reproductive rights when we're having conversations about 
whether religion and politics can ever be really be separate in what's now the United States. And we are, I think, becoming increasingly aware that they are not. And it matters that folks know how we got here and that it's not just a conversation about evangelicalism. It's a conversation about whiteness, but it's also a conversation about Catholicism. And we need to pay more attention to the nuances at work here if we're really going to understand what's going on. Arguing for nuance in public is hard and it takes, well, it, it, it takes a global village. So I'm just trying to do my part. As a professor who now enjoys tenure, I have worked internally to make sure that the public work I do counts. And I've had great luck with my department chairs, plural, who have supported me and really stood by me, even though I don't think they had made the same choices, not even hypothetical. It's not that they would have made different choices. They did not make the same choice. But look, I'm a scholar of Islam. I have never been part of an academy that has treated Islam or Muslims or scholars of Islam and Muslims, which sometimes overlap and sometimes don't, Mm -hmm. as the same as like a Mm -hmm. biblical study scholar or an American historian of religion. Like when I was a graduate student, our advisors gave us tips on how to manage the hate mail that we would get from being graduate teaching assistants. Mm. And because you were going to teach in public and there were going to be students in your class, some of whom were bankrolled by alt-right or right-wing organizations and think tanks and Mm -hmm. newspapers to like report out on us. We also were called on all the time in grad school and beyond Start, starting as young as like junior scholars, right, um, to make speeches in churches. You know, when I first moved to Vermont, literally weeks after I first moved to Vermont, there was a, a drama that happened at a local restaurant around bacon and around someone, a white person saying that bacon was offensive to Muslims. And then it caused this like right wing backlash and all the muslims were like yo we're not scared of bacon we just don't want to eat it like i don't know what the deal is but we're getting a lot of hate now because this white savior woke white woman is like don't advertise bacon it offends our muslim neighbor like just bananas stuff but in that moment i'd literally been here for three weeks i think my name was barely on the website of of Hmm. university of vermont and i was getting a flood of phone calls from reporters because this had become a national news story somehow I don't know that I often have the choice to be a public or not public scholar. I think I often think about it as obligation. Where am I as a white Jewish woman going to have less hate come at me for something that if my hijabi colleague said or did, they would be absolutely creamed by trolls. And so those are spaces where I'm happy to use my whiteness as like a a shield or a protective raincoat, you know, because I can take it off and not get super wet. Um, but I also think that it makes me feel different about my obligation, right? Like I feel obligated to the public, having been educated by a public school for my PhD, but also I teach at a public land grant institution. So I've always taken that really seriously. And I, it's not that I don't make choices about how I engage the public, but I've never seen it as separate from the intellectual work I'm doing. My conversation with Dr. Elise Morgenstein first and Dr. Megan Goodwin continues after the break. When we return, we talk about this coming season and why religion education can at times be, well, problematic and so much more. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, I'm in conversation with the co-hosts and co-creators of Keeping It 101, the Killjoy's Guide to Religion podcast. That's Dr. Megan Goodwin and Dr. Elise Morgenstein first. As we get back to the conversation, we turn to season five, set to drop into pod feeds on August 31st. Let's get back to the conversation. You're now about to launch season five, which we're going to get Uh into in a second. But just an overview. What led to this podcast? Like, why this podcast? And what have you learned doing it? Oh, golly. Lots of things. We had intended the program to be something that we could do together that would be both useful and joyous for us to work on. And given how long we have collectively and individually been teaching the the intro level religious studies stuff seemed like a, a good place to go. But I also think we take very seriously the fact that most folks don't have an opportunity to study religion, nor are they given a reason to. You just said intro religion. And for listeners, I just unpack what that means. Religious studies scholars, for the most part, aren't interested in truth claims about whether there is or is not a God. What we want to pay attention to is what folks do and what becomes possible when we take the practices of people who identify as religious seriously? And what do we learn about the world around us when we look harder for how religion has helped structure that world and those systems? And how do you make that fun? We're hilarious. (laughs) You're welcome. And humble. Elise is humble. I'm hilarious. No, Elise also hilarious. Otherwise, this wouldn't work. Uh, we make it fun because we're good teachers. We bring in interesting examples. There's very few spaces for them to learn about religion mm-hmm. as a category of human experience as opposed to like a personal investment in a specific tradition or system. And I'm hoping that we're encouraging folks not just to realize that they've missed out by not having that opportunity, but also that certain groups really benefit from them not looking too closely at religion. Who benefits from saying, well, religion and politics are actually separate? The people whose religion are winning in politics. It's white folks. It's mostly Christians. It's mostly men. 
it's mostly folks who are invested in what they understand as a conservative way of being in the world that makes very little space for difference, basically for anyone who is not the central narrative in a specific kind of mainstream white Christianity. So we want folks to have the tools to look at the world around them and go, hey, not only is this not right, but it doesn't have to be this way. And what happens if I ask these questions? What becomes possible if I think about religion, not as an inevitability, not as something that happens to us, but it's something that's both being done by us and being done to us. And how else could we do it? Hmm. You're asking us to interrogate. And for many, the body of knowledge that we may have is might be just limited to our, our own lived experience. I did hear you, Elise, say earlier that you are mindful that you may be challenged, in fact, for bringing some of the, these issues up. Yeah. Oh. Challenged nothing. She got hate crimed. Yeah, I get I get hate quite frequently. And I want to say, for the record, I get a lot less hate and it is less vociferous than people who are not white. So like, I get a fraction of what some of my colleagues who teach um, Islam who are Muslim or who are black or brown get. So mm. I, I want to be clear, but the Nazis, they're in my inbox pretty regularly. I sadly think it's just part of the job. I think talking about religion and talking about Islam in public puts you at risk, which mm. is both devastating and factually accurate. Here you are with microphones and hmm. you have a beyond the classroom. You're reaching a different audience. My sense from where I sit is that your audience is growing. It is growing, and it was also way more both spread out and diverse than I think we could have ever anticipated because we really thought, like, we would use these episodes in our classes and maybe some of our friends would tune in. So that's in a, in a U.S. university setting. But we're seeing it used in high schools, both in the U.S. and abroad. We have a, a dedicated contingent of religious education teachers in the U.K. that chime in all the time, which is great. But the places I didn't expect for us to reach that I love are the folks who work in healthcare and social work. We have one one film writer dude reached out and was like, can you help me explain to my writer's room why Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is very tired and there has to be different ways to tell stories? Like, yes, I can. Challenge accepted. This is great. It is all the spaces where you would expect folks to want to know more about religion, because they're encountering folks from backgrounds different than their own. And really, like, that's, if you get one thing in a class, if we think about the podcast as a class, the one thing we're hoping you take away is that there's more to know about religion than what you already know, than what you know of it. So I want to sample here for listeners a little exchange that you guys have about world religion. Nerds, you'll remember that Megan, the Americanist, got a couple of episodes to outline the history of one place. And I got a couple of episodes to do literally the rest of the world, right? You remember? You remember that, nerds? <laughs> yeah, we get it. We get it. You're mad. You're mad at the way that American-centric histories and ideas allow PhDs to know something so particular. And you always have to be both a specialist and a generalist because you're stuck to finding in-jaw before you can open your damn mouth. Move on, girl. But actually don't, because you're cranky and right, and I cherish you. <laughs> you challenge at the outset this this frame that people have been given from the time that they sat down in a classroom, often public schools, but also in other uh, religious um, educational settings to talk about world religions. Can you speak to this dichotomy that you talk about in the show and in particularly in that series? 
we stand uh, in a very long, not not very, very long in terms of like the historical lens, but a yeah, very established um, set of critiques, particularly from folks like Edward Said mm-hmm. or Talal Assad mm-hmm. or um, the Chakrabarti, Sabah Mahmood, that says, hey, listen, all of these things that we think of as natural and normal and popular, they were all invented when Europe owned and dominated something like 85 to 92% of the world, depending on how you count and and what kind of stats you're looking at. And so in that moment, which just so happens to be my actual expertise, (laughs) in that moment, we're also developing these frameworks of world religions and Uh they become regimented, right? If your 10th grade son is reading a textbook about world religions, it's drawing on this 150, 250 year old system without really thinking about it because our textbooks are the most simplistic way we think about things as categories or like platonic forms. And so if everyone has a religion, we got to learn world religions. But when I, uh, when I, so I've been doing research on, um, Each state has an official textbook or sometimes multiple textbooks. And one of the things I'm doing is coding for how they're talking about world religions. And and it's shocking how frequently it's like a copy paste from book to book from year to year. And the things that we need to know about Jews stay the same. And the thing we need to know about Muslims changes a little bit after 2001, but mostly stays the same. We lump things in like Confucianism because – we don't want to think too critically about what's going on in China and it kind of looks like a religion and it doesn't really function the way that like philosophy in Europe functions. So like, yeah, 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 we'll just call it religion. Well, like we can trace that. We know exactly when that happens. So I don't think we're saying anything radical, but I do think the thing that Megan and I do uh, well, if I, if I may say so, is that we find a lot of this absurd Yes. It's absurd. And so mm-hmm. like good comedians, hmm. you can truth tell when you point out the absurdities because it's actually really hard to teach someone the unfurling of history, but mm-hmm. it's very easy for humans to smell a hypocrisy mm-hmm. or to smell something ridiculous that seems uh, it's like the Ripley's Believe It or Not effect. Like, you'll never believe this, but I swear it's true. And so we're just capitalizing on that bit of human emotion because – we're not above that. I uh-uh. think that all the time. I tell Megan every time. She always makes fun of me that I'm like a historian to my core and I really want all the historical details. And she's yeah. always like, oh, this is too much. And I'm like, but you couldn't make this up. If uh-huh. you were writing a movie, the editorial notes would be, this is this is too wild. No one will believe this. Fix hmm. the plot. And it's like, no, that really happened. And here's uh-huh. all of the materials <laughs> that proves it. Yep. So calling well, I, it out is just yeah. par for the course for us. Well, I think we also need to to name the inspiration of folks like Mel Brooks, which comes through the clearest in our most recent season. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. You can talk about the atrocities as long as you can also make fun of the oppressors. We're marching to a faster pace. Look out, here comes the master that's what we're up to, pointing out the very serious joke that is global history of religion and hopefully making good trouble by making fun of the oppressors. Mm. 
Tell us about this coming season. What's coming up? And <laughs> why is it titled incorrect? Because <laughs> we're snarky. <laughs> so half of our episode this season will be part of a series called Incorrect, in part because we love Shit's Creek and we can't <laughs> not think about um, <laughs> about David yeah. saying yeah. incorrect. Incorrect. These mountaineering shoes that my boyfriend is wearing looking like Oprah on a Thanksgiving Day hike. Incorrect. It's yeah. okay. Total, a delayed pop culture reference that has stuck with us. This is just how we talk to each other, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's where the title, we are riffing on that. Mm-hmm. But we're aware, you know what? I'm just going to tell you straight. We are so tired yeah. of people asking us the same questions over and over again. Like, Is again, a jihad a, really a holy war? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. But here we are in 2022 and I'm still answering Mm -hmm. but what is jihad really so incorrect is really a bunch of the most common questions that we get that people are still getting wrong and sometimes Mm -hmm. that comes from a place of genuine genuine curiosity and ignorance Mm -hmm. and also to, to push our listeners a little bit it comes from a place of willful plugging your ears and not listening because Cult and jihad, right? Like that that's mm-hmm. that's it. You you have not been listening mm-hmm. if you really think jihad is this one thing. Right. Because there have been hundreds and thousands of Muslims, authors, scholars, radio personalities, TV comedians, you name it, who have said, Y'all have the wrong idea about this thing. So at this point it's it's willful mm-hmm. ignorance. And so we are uh in our patented um killjoy yelling tone <laughs> uh trying to set the record straight so that at the very least we've added to the cacophony and when someone sends me that email i can just say go, go check out episode five whatever <laughs> 500 whatever well i think so, we're also doing a little bit to ask who benefits from your refusal right. to learn about these topics right what kind of oppression continues to be possible there's a power lens that you both mm-hmm. bring to almost every conversation, at least the ones that I've listened to. And I haven't listened to the entire, I haven't listened to every episode. We of the forgive catalog, you. Yeah, it's okay, fine. There's a lot of them. There's we talk many. a lot. We there talk are, a lot. You name often systems of oppression mm-hmm. that relate to white power. Yep. That reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with Kathy Joshi. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've had her on the show. She's great. And I remember in that conversation, mm-hmm. her making that point of let's stop pretending that things are neutral. Whiteness pervades all aspects of life. And I argue a white Christianity pervades all aspects of life. That's part of white Christian supremacy. What I'm saying is that we don't live in race neutral or religion neutral societies and that the starting point is white supremacy. Making that point Uh that if we acknowledge the system that we're living in, it doesn't mean that we are trying to dismantle the entire system. It's that let's start with just seeing the system more clearly. Mm -hmm. Two things. One, people think of deconstruction as only an ever destructive, but it's it's constructive work as well. You just can't build a a stable system or residence on shaky foundations. But I also, I'm really glad that you brought up Dr. Joshi's work because not only is the point that she's making so, so important, but also she tends to not be the person who gets cited on this. We right. tend to see a lot of white dudes get cited on white Christian privilege in a way that her book is not. And 
I think it's important to recognize that scholars are also not outside these systems of oppression and discrimination. When you talk about issues related to race and white Christian privilege so directly, uh, are you ever concerned about people tuning out? No, sorry. But to be James Baldwin about this, as if I ever could. But if I love you, I have to help you see the things that you might not see on your own. And that's obviously a paraphrase. But uh, the folks who want to do better are going to want to listen. And if they're not ready, then that's, they're not ready. But we're not going to tame the conversation to misrepresent what's really going on. That's, I don't think, in either of our natures. No, I come from a long line of Yiddish speakers, which means they speak really directly, but also in metaphor. And one of the things that I love the most about my grandpa is that he Mm. used to say, like, why wouldn't you just call it what it is? Uh Like, who benefits from Mm -hmm. the euphemism is not a Yiddish phrase, but it is 100%, you know, like, I swear a lot on the podcast, and I (laughs) use a lot of direct language. Just you, though. Yeah, just me. But I think that that, like, calling a spade a spade does not take away from how we use that spade or from what that spade is. And so I don't see the benefit in calling it something else, right? Yeah. It's, it's actually the opposite of a rose by any other name. It's it's the opposite of that. Like, mm-hmm. it's not about using whatever language we want. It's about being direct because when we are direct, we have more control over how the system, how we fit into the systems, and also how we're experiencing those systems. Mm-hmm. Calling a white supremacist or a white supremacist system anything other than white supremacist only creates cover for white supremacy. And I have no interest, we have no interest in doing that. So. Mm. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, my conversation with Dr. Megan Goodwin and Dr. Elise Morgenstein first. They're the co-hosts of Keeping It 101, the Killjoy's Guide to Religion podcast. Season 5 is set to drop on August 31st. As we get back to the conversation, we dive into what life is like as religion scholars navigating interfaith and multi-faith spaces. Let's get back to the conversation. Do you find yourselves evolving in your own thinking when you have conversations and you dive into some of these assumptions that are being tackled in this upcoming season? We found growth in, as we've done the podcast, I think, Mm -hmm. but we're always learning. We're always trying to like read new books and keep up Mm -hmm. on, not just because of our professional work, but in order to cite broadly in the way we do the podcast, we have to be up on things in a way that's different than our specific and very limited uh, proper areas of expertise. I think that's right. I think the other thing I want to add is that because we've covered what I think we think of as the basics in the first couple seasons, we're also in a position now to be more directly in conversation with our listeners. So the other part of season five is a series called So Glad You Asked, where we're answering listener questions and addressing topics that we might not pick up organically. So it's giving us a sense of what folks who are really invested in this conversation want to talk about. And it's pushing us to do some reading and thinking and and chatting outside, again, our very specific areas of expertise. So that's been a real joy. It's a real gift that we don't often get in traditional academic spaces. You don't get to talk 
with folks from all over the world who are tuning in to hear what you think about religion. <laughs> so, I mean, what a what a blessing and what an opportunity. So, yeah, we we love having listeners push us to think more critically about how we're coming at religion. Earlier, you mentioned that these days there are not a lot of places to learn about religious worldviews, let alone engage and see all those nuances that you're talking about. One space that I see often working to create intentional opportunities for learning are interfaith and multi-faith groups. I'm curious, do you, either of you engage in these places? I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure that that, that sort of organizing, while incredibly valuable, is, is my calling. I'm not interested on turning the temperature down on injustice. Uh, and this makes me a, a very poor candidate for a lot of those rooms. I belong to a synagogue in a small city. Um, and we bring our children there. And, you know, we've served on committees and all that. And I often have gotten called in to do interfaith work. And I, I learned early um, two things about interfaith work. One, it's not my strong suit either. Because everyone often starts at a place um, of knowing their own tradition or knowing their own synagogue, knowing their own church. And as experts, it feels challenging to be at not like an intro level, but like a kindergarten level, which isn't to say that those spaces aren't important. It's just to say that's not the right fit for me, someone mm -hmm. who has, you know, four degrees in studying religion. And so I'm not, just like Megan said, I'm not an asset in that room. I'm a liability because there, <laughs> <That's accurate>. is, <laughs> there is no way for me to sound not like an egghead know-it-all because in that space, I actually do know more than almost everybody else. And that yeah. doesn't mean that what I know is the expertise that's called for in that mm -hmm. scenario. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I have removed myself from a lot of those places. I'll also mm -hmm. say um, what I want in, uh, I was a pretty big player, not a big player. I was a big part of an interfaith organization here in Vermont for a minute there. And what I want is for people in power to be quiet. Like I have never been to an interfaith meeting that doesn't have every flavor of Christian and ah uh -huh. Jew, yep. an ah Muslim, yep. and the Jews and the Muslims sit and they are talked at. Yep. While Christians tell me how good they are, uh -huh. even though I had to argue for the meeting not to be on a Saturday because the Shomer Shabbos Jews can't go. Or how bad they feel about not having been better in the past. How bad they feel. Like, I mean, it's that kind of thing where it's like what I actually want. And again, this is why I'm not a good candidate for these <laughs> rooms is I genuinely want well-meaning Christians to be quiet. Uh -huh. Because in my experience, they are doing the most damage and uh -huh. they have the most relative power. And so until... I don't have to email the interfaith president, or the like interfaith association president and say, hey, remember that Rosh Hashanah is a thing? What if we don't schedule a meeting that day? That's not a critique or a, that should ever be levied in that scenario. In that scenario, you should have an interfaith calendar on your calendar and you should know how to make meetings. And that's just not been my experience. And so, like I said to my rabbi, not, not three days ago when she called <laughs> to see if I would be willing to join another committee, I said... I know other people can do this work at the level that it needs to be done, but that's not for me right now. Okay, so we start off and you said very, I think, accurately, there's so little space, there's so little place where you can gather and dive in and talk about safely and ask the wrong question and have someone kind of engage with you and create uh -huh. that space. There are just not that many spaces out there. And so uh -huh. of interfaith circles aren't those spaces that, based on your experience... Well, 
No, I, I think they are those spaces. I just don't. I think Elisa's right. I think we are liabilities in those spaces. No, no, no. That is I not actually, our calling. I would actually correct you on that. So okay. I give talks as an expert to interfaith and uh, mixed religious communities all the time. When I can be an expert and mm-hmm. teach in those spaces, those are great spaces. Those are actually amazing spaces. Like we have this lunch and learn program at our synagogue, mm-hmm. and I am a regular professor of the lunch and learns, and we do <laughs> all manner of like ask me questions about Hinduism, ask me questions about Islam, like all the things that I can do adequately. That is feels different to me than the conversations of like, we as an interfaith group need to advocate for reproductive justice. How are we going to do that as an interfaith group? And then I have to listen to all manner of people who don't understand Judaism's perspectives on abortion and et cetera, et cetera. And that's where I am not a good teammate in those spaces, but an educator, happy to do it. And so I think that I think that when I've had success in interfaith communities, it's when folks um, are willing to learn from me because I have this expertise. Where I fail and am a liability is where I'm expected to just be Elise, comma, a Jewish mom. Mm. And so when I come into those spaces and say, ah, yo, that assumption you just said is bananas and I'm going to need to push back hard, yeah. then I'm just, another, I'm just a normal mom in that space. And that's a place where for me, it doesn't work. In the same way that when I'm teaching my class, I'm not just a PhD. I'm also Elise the mom. When I'm in an interfaith space and they want me to not have an expert uh, opinion, that's where that's where I'm a liability because I do know more in that mm-hmm. scenario. And so or, like, yeah, those, those feel like different scenarios though. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think where we can actually fall on our, our teaching expertise and our love of teaching makes us great in those spaces. My experiences have mostly been that my carefully, exhaustively cultivated expertise is often dismissed. It is dismissed as opinion, as my personal opinion in a lot of those spaces where I'm not invited as an expert. And just remind us, what is that? It was uh, a Christian pastor who was telling me, was telling the entire room that cults have no religion. And that is a bad and dangerous framing of what's happening with cults. And I said, well, that's incorrect. And he said, well, that's your opinion. And I left the room because I've been doing a lot of therapy and I'm working on myself. Um, (laughs) I wasn't in a position to be respected as as an expert. I'll also say, I think there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different levels at which to do this work. So the fact that I can't just sit and be Megan in those spaces is okay because they have other people that will do that. And I also really appreciate the opportunities uh, where I get to learn from folks who are experts in areas that I am not. So without uh, telling tales out of school, I just did an event at Notre Dame. And one of the folks who participated is someone who's been for over a decade invested in peacemaking in Northern Ireland. He and I had very different opinions about what's going on in Ireland and how we'd like to see it resolved. But I really appreciated the opportunity to hear about how he brings folks from very different sides of conversations in conversation together to keep more people alive. That's a real contribution. I would never want to be dismissive of that. It is not my calling, but I have absolute respect for folks whose mission is, how do we make this survivable? So I just, I like, I I like to be able to make the most impact and be the most valuable I can. And very often me as Megan in interfaith spaces just isn't it. In last week's episode, we did a little dive into conspiracy theories in QAnon and how it's growing. There's a lot of folks using the word cult to describe QAnon. You have some opinions about that. The short version is thinking about QAnon as a new religion is 
letting both the GOP and white Christian nationalism off the hook. We have been headed in this direction for quite some time. There is nothing new about QAnon except its level of absurdity. I get very concerned when we want to diagnose Q participants as true believers, because I don't think personal investment in the ideology is what's most important here. What I want to pay attention to is what it makes possible. And what it makes possible is ridiculous amounts of fundraising, particularly but not exclusively for self-identified conservative lawmakers. And what it makes possible is raids and sieges on our nation's capital. So do I care that everybody who is trying to overthrow American democracy really believes what's going on in Q? I do not. What I care about is when they show up with guns, and they do and they have. So this is a place where we need to think about religion as more than just belief. What does religion make possible is the question that I want us to be thinking about. And what Q has made possible is a lot of violence and a lot of weaponized hatred and a lot of danger for a lot of folks who are not like them. Reflecting back on our conversation, for this show at least, our approach is that beliefs are not static. They often, you know, move individuals to act in ways that you may not recognize, ways that you may not see. And religion reporters have this saying that I think I've mentioned to you before, that if you see a story and religion isn't there, you just look a little closer and you find beliefs um, playing a role. Well, I want to, I want to, slightly shift that and suggest that even if beliefs are not playing a role, religious worldviews, religious assumptions, religious institutions absolutely are. So the reason that our forthcoming book is called Religion Is Not Done With You is because religion is not done with you. Even if you have no personal beliefs in any religion, religion is shaping the world around us. And Americans have been incentivized not to think too closely about that. So we want to help you ask better questions and you should check out the book, please. And thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Megan Goodwin is the former program director for Sacred Rights. Her formal area of expertise is in the areas of gender, sexuality, race, politics, and American religions. Dr. Elise Morgenstein First is an Associate Professor of Religion and the Director of the Humanities Center at the University of Vermont. That's all for this week's show. Head over to our website to learn more about this week's guests and the podcast at interfaithradio.org. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy, myself, and Richa Karmaker. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.